If you have your Bibles, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and maybe one of the most technical sermons I've ever preached. Colossians 1, 15 to 20, the Word of God says this, the Son is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all of creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they are thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. The most controversial aspect of our faith is the belief in a triune God. The fact that we believe that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And the fact that we believe that God as Father, Son, and Spirit has co-eternally existed from all of eternity. That is one of the anchor points of the Christian faith. And when it comes to the idea, the concept of who is Jesus, there's a great deal of controversy. If you do any reading of other religions, you can see it. Right? You want to read about the Muslim faith, they have an opinion about Jesus. About the Hindu faith, they have the, an opinion about Jesus. The Sikh faith, an opinion about Jesus. And I've talked to leaders, mainly in the Hamilton area, but beyond Hamilton, about what they believe about Jesus. You see it in cults, whether it be the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, the Christians, and in the cults' opinions of who Jesus is. In culture, because if Jesus is who he claims to be or who we believe he says he is or scripture claims him to be, it changes everything. Changes everything. But we believe he is the second person of the triune God and has eternally always been so. He's eternally always been the son. And so as Paul is writing here to the people in Colossae, and he's addressing the Colossian heresy is what's known as, which is a syncretistic heresy of both probably Jewish foundation, which is why you find some conversation later on in Colossians about Sabbath, uh, about circumcision that's mentioned. And then you have other that's mentioned, which would be probably Jewish pagan thought about principles and powers, possibly angelic worship of kinds. Paul is addressing that, and he starts by talking about who Christ is. The Bible, in the way it's written, over the ages and generations, multi-authored to us, does not have just a section you can look up on the Trinity. It's not like you can just open your Bibles to a certain portion of the Bible and say, oh, Trinity, and then read a portion on the Trinity. We piece portions of Scripture together to understand what God is saying. And all of those portions come together to grant, and grant us an understanding of who God is and how he has revealed himself to us. And so here in verse 15, Paul says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all of creation. Now right there, you have controversy. What does it mean 
when Scripture says he's firstborn, if he's always been? Why is that language used here? Why does Paul put that here? Firstborn typically means what? One who's given birth first. So why is that there? Looking for an answer. Oh, wait, that's my job. All right. The son has eternally been the son, always. So we start with the son is in the image of the invisible God. He has always been the son. When we find Jesus at his baptism, the father says what? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. When we find uh, John describing the work of the father and the son, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He has from eternity past always been the son. It's not like there was a point where the father created the son. The son has always been the son. The spirit has always been the spirit. The father has always been the father. Always. And has always been so from eternity past. It's not like the son became the son when he incarnated himself. That's not what occurred. The son has always eternally been the son. Now, when you find the language here, the Son is in the image of the invisible God, we find that language in other places. In Genesis, God said, let us make man in our image. In our image. So you find this in other places in Scripture, this whole image idea. And I would suggest that Christ, having always eternally been the Son, means that though he is the second Adam, he was also the pre incarnate Adam, and as he was the pre-incarnate Adam, it means that when the Trinity is having this conversation about creating the Son in his image or likeness, he's being created in the image or likeness of the Son, specifically, of the Son specifically. Though he will have attributes, Adam, of the Father and of the Spirit, but he's being imaged in that of the Son. And so you have the image of Adam who is created in the image of God. And Adam was to be this perfect representation of God in the sense that Adam was never to have sinned, but Adam chose to sin. And so from this pre-existing Adam, that's Christ, who becomes the second Adam when he incarnates himself, living perfectly, never sinning, we have the image of Adam made. You find Jesus showing up in Scripture as well prior to his incarnation. So in Scripture, you find these theophanies. That's what they're called, sometimes Christophanies, because we believe that Christ showed up at times prior to his incarnation. In the book of Genesis, in the 18th chapter, you find Abraham there, and in that conversation, it says, the Lord came to Abraham. The Lord came to Abraham. Well, who is the Lord? Who is this pre-incarnate figure? You find other examples of this in Scripture. Another one that's more popular, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're in the fiery furnace. The furnace has been heated seven times harder than normal as they're in the furnace, and the furnace is heated to that seven times. Finally, one of the, the, the administrators that's there says to King Nebuchadnezzar, Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, live forever. Did we not throw three men into the fire? He says, we did. He said, there's a fourth man there, and the fourth man looks like the Son of God. That's probably a theophany. It's Christ in the furnace with them. They're in the furnace. And so you have, prior to his incarnation, 
Christ the Son, who is the image of the invisible God. Christ the Son, who is an image, who takes human form in the person of Christ, but does so even previous to that, images God at times in these theophanies or Christophanies in the Old Testament. God coming down. Some would suggest that any time you actually see the language the angel of the Lord used in Scripture in the Old Testament, it's always of a pre-incarnate occurrence of Christ. I would debate that at times. I think it's situation by situation you have to look at, but some would suggest it's any time that you see that. And so at times then, we find here the Son is, in language of Scripture, is the image of the invisible God. He is then called the firstborn over all of creation. What does that mean? L.G. Tipton says this, Christ is eternally and originally the image of the invisible God. Christ is eternally and originally the image of the invisible God. That's what firstborn means. It means that he is originally God, and it means that he is eternally God. Because firstborn can hold to the meaning of this, the one who holds the inheritance right. The one who holds the inheritance right. The one who has the birthright. And so as the Father has chosen to use language to describe himself to us in ways that we can understand him as the Father, Christ as the Son, the Spirit as the Spirit, as that is true, firstborn language is used here, and that language is to depict Christ's supremacy. In saying he is firstborn over all of creation, he is saying he is preeminent over all of creation, and he owns the inheritance rights of the Father. And he is supreme. He is supreme. I'll come to that. I'll come back to that in a moment as we go through this passage. You find this reiterated a bit later in the very passage in verse 19, where Paul says, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And he's talking about the incarnated Christ at that moment. You'll see that in this passage, that there's a parallelism being drawn here that I'll get to, of the pre-incarnate Christ and the incarnate, then resurrected Christ. And the language is used very purposely, which is why some people think this was a hymn of some type. I don't think that. I don't think this, this shows the same characteristics of other hymns that are used in the New Testament but there's much debate over that. And I would suggest this. The, the reason that God is used here in terminology and not Father is I don't believe that Christ's incarnate nature was God the Father filling him with divinity. Christ's incarnate nature, nature was the divine Son being incarnated. And it was his divine nature, that is, the divine nature of the Son himself. Now, you feel like you're in seminary this morning. I know that. But why is this important? Everything about our faith hangs on this. Everything. This is critical to understanding our faith, that we believe in a triune God who has cloaked himself with the deity in the person of Jesus Christ and has shown up. And has shown up. Jesus, then, is in very essence God. We find that in the book of Philippians. Pastor Paul looked at that last week. You find claims in Scripture where Jesus says what? I and the Father are one. So as we understand this from Scripture, John 1, what? The Word was with God. The Word was God. Right? The Word is both able to be with God and is God because God is triune in nature. So you have the very nature of Jesus 
who is in the image of the invisible God. He is preeminent over all of creation. Now, why is that the case? Because of his power. Note this in verse 16. For in him all things were created. Paul here, in addressing the Colossian heresy, and the Colossians believing that there are other authorities, other powers that they should be praying to or talking to. I mean, I faced that this week. I was at a school meeting at St. Lawrence School. And they normally offer a prayer that I have found to be fine to open the school council meetings with. This week, we opened the prayer by praying to Mary. I'm like, here we go. This is it, right? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we started this prayer into Mary that I don't pray with them. There are people all around us that believe there are other authorities, other powers to which you should address in prayer. The Colossians believed that. A whole group in Colossae believed that. And Paul, in addressing that and wanting specifically to talk about this, says, I want you to know there's no other power to talk to. There's no other being to go to. There's no other one to address. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. Anything in the heavens, anything on the earth, visible or invisible, anything you can see, anything you cannot see, thrones or powers. He's saying whether it's a human throne of someone who has authority or a power that you believe exists, whether it's a ruler, someone who is sitting in ruling authority, or it's just someone that has authoritative measure. All things have been created through him and for him. Paul's saying, I want you to know there's nothing in the universe, nothing whatsoever. He comprehensively lists through all of those statements that have not been created by Jesus. Everything, everything has been created by him. And he offers this comprehensive language so that everyone knows, including the Colossian believers, that there's nothing, nothing, nothing that is above the rule of Christ. Everything comes under his rule because not only is every created thing created through him, through his energy, through his creative being, through his power, it's created for him. It exists for him. Our prime minister exists for Christ. Our premier exists for Christ. Donald Trump exists for Christ. We exist for Christ. The angelic realm exists for Christ. The animals around us exist for Christ. The waters and the seas exist for Christ. The land and the mountains exist for Christ. They have been created by him and they are created for him. They exist for his glory and honor and purpose and pleasure for him. And Paul here in addressing that is showing his supremeness, his preeminence, if you will, that all things are owned by him. G.K. Beale, here we go. And so he, that's Jesus, is the perfect divine expression in eternity past of God's image. He is the archetype behind God's design for Adam to reflect God's image in an ethical manner and likewise for his people in the new creation to reflect God's image. Archetype meaning this. It is the pattern from which all copies are made. It is the original. Christ is the original the archetype from which all things are made. But he becomes the ecopole when he cloaks his deed with humanity. That is a representation of the copy or original. But he's a copy or a representation of himself as the second person of the triune God, cloaking his deity with humanity, 
coming down. Not taking upon the Father's deity when he comes down, but his own deity. He has his own deity. He has cloaked his own deity with humanity as he shows up. And he has a comprehensive power. He is eternally the Son. He is eternally the Son. That is who he is. And as you see that, you realize, P. Foster says this, that Christ constitutes both the domain and locus of power in which the cosmos can be brought into existence. The domain being the sphere. Christ is the sphere of power, but he is also the center of power. He is both. Some people debate whether it's one or the other, but it's actually both. He is the sphere of all power, and he is the centerpiece of power. That means there's nothing that is more powerful than Christ. He is the centerpiece of power, but he is the sphere of power, meaning that there's nothing outside of his power. All things exist within his power, within his control. That is who he is. That is our Christ. And then you find a reference again to firstborn in verse 18, that he is the firstborn from among the dead. I'll come back to that. Sorry, that's verse 18. So then you have the authority of Christ, verse 18 of Colossians 1. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And so now you have Jesus, who's not only created all things, but in verse 17, which is the bridge verse, holds all things together. Christ has the authority to hold everything together. Everything is held together by him. Now we transition to his incarnated self. He is the head of the body. He is the head. Head here meaning authority and also source. The great debate is whether head is simply authority or source. The answer is no, it's both. Authority, and you can see the authority here. When, when Paul is talking about his authority over principalities and powers, over visible and invisible, over, over that which is seen and unseen, it is authoritative. It is authoritative language. He is the head, the authority of the church. But he is also the source of our growth, which I believe is a secondary meaning of the term head. And so he is both the, the authority of the church, but he is also the, the source of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn. What does that mean? Well, we find this language in other places. He, he shows us what it means here from among the dead. In the book of Revelation, this is found in Revelation 1, verse 4 and 5. Grace and peace to you, John says, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before the throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, he is the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's our Christ. He is the firstborn among the dead. Christ conquered sin and death. And Christ being the firstborn from the dead is unique. Elijah, right, raised the widow's son to life, but the son would die again. Jesus raised a young girl to life, but she would die again. Jesus raised Lazarus to life, but Lazarus would die again. When Christ conquers sin and Satan and death on the cross, Christ is raised to life on the third day, having never sinned, because I've said this so many times, because sin could not accuse him, because death could not destroy him, because Satan could not own him or defeat him. Because that is true, on the third day he's raised to life again, he is the firstborn from the dead, never to die again. He died death once for all, never to die again. And when those of us who know him, those of us who believed on his name know him, die and were resurrected again, we will never die again. It is glorious good news. Our bodies won't decay. 
Last night, there was a picture of me from my induction service at my parents' house. My mom brought out this old picture of a friend and I. He had come to my induction, a non-Christian friend, and mom wanted to give him the picture. And so mom had this picture of me when I'm 23 years old, having just turned 23 and just become the pastor of this church and, I, and my induction service. Amy looked at the picture, and I'm, I, I'm weighing 150 in that picture. That's what I weighed when we got married until I was about 30. And Amy said, because part of my sciatica is my weight. And so Amy said, oh, you didn't have sciatica then, did you? And I'm like, honey. She's like, well, I'm just saying that. That's a very different you in that picture. Julie and Ivy are like, who is that man? I'm like, come on. That is your dad in his younger years. What do you mean, who is that man? That is me. And sometimes my family says that is a very different you. It's okay. They still love me. And so Christ here, uh, is, he, he, is, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Our resurrected bodies will experience no pain, no disease. We will never be tempted with sin, no death, no illness. It is great news. I want you to note that then the passage says this, that Christ as the one who came and lived, incarnated himself, and has become the head of the body of the church, its authority, and its source for growth. And he is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. He is now the pattern from which our resurrection will occur, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. God, in, in the book of Philippians, where Paul looked last week, word of God says that God has exalted Christ to the highest place, to the name that's above every name. But I want you to know that in his resurrected preeminence, though it surpassed a suppressed preeminence from his incarnated self, it did not surpass the preeminence he always enjoyed eternally as God the Son. He is God the Son. You see, some people will come to this passage or the passage in Philippians and say, Christ now has a preeminence that he never had before. That's not true. Christ suppressed part of his preeminence in suppressing the prerogatives of deity when he cloaked his humanity with deity, though he was fully divine in his divine nature as the second person of the triune God. And so Christ suppressed some of that for a time. But as the language of Scripture talks about his supremacy in his resurrected self, it's not a supremacy that he has now that he never had before. It's a supremacy that was suppressed through his incarnated time but not a supremacy that he didn't have as the divine son from all of eternity past. It's not like his supremacy grows after his resurrection and is somehow greater than his pre-incarnate self. He's always the supreme divine son from eternity past. Having for a time and period in his life suppressed that when he incarnated himself so that he could identify with us, becoming the second Adam as the preeminent Adam, in whom Adam, human Adam's likeness was made so that he could rescue us from sin. Everybody with me? I'm hoping that helps, understanding who Christ is. I know this is a little technical, and I can see some glazedness. Next week, we'll get to the practical stuff. But I'll come back to this later in Colossians as well. Verse 19. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
Again, reminiscent of verse 16, for in him all things were created. Things. And then you have this language here, all things were created through him and for him. You have this language of all things, all things, all things. And here you find it again, verse 16, and then here in verse 19. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And again, I would suggest that the language here is God, the second person of the triune God, the Son, his deity rested in the Son when he imaged himself here, incarnated himself as Jesus the Christ. And this God, the second person of the triune God, Jesus the Christ, who has supremacy in everything, is the head of the church. Is that not good news? I'm not the head of the church. Paul's not the head of the church. Our elders aren't the head of the church. The Pope is not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Amen. He is its source. He is its authority. He is the head of the church. And what does he do? Paul gives us his primary task here. Because Jesus incarnating himself shows us what God is like in both his character and ability. What is God like? Note verse 20. He's a reconciling God. He longs to reconcile to himself all things, whether they're on earth or under the earth, by making peace through his blood, which is shed on the cross. His blood was shed. He died for us to reconcile. Our sin alienated us from God. Our sin separated us from him. But Christ longs to reconcile us. And the way, the means of reconciliation was that the Son would cloak his deity with humanity, come down fully human, fully divine, never sinning, and at the end of his life, giving his life up for us on a cross. Having died in our stead, he gives us his righteousness for anyone who believes, and he took our sin upon himself so that we could be reconciled to God. We can have a relationship with God. I went for a run this morning, and as I ran, I prayed, and I thought, as I started, because I'd read this passage, and been reading the commentaries all week, and as I started on my run this morning, I, I just started, and I just said, God, I get to pray to you because I've been reconciled by the shed blood of Christ. I'm not just mindlessly out here running. I get to pray to the living God, praise his name. Is that not great news? My words don't just escape me into the air. My words are heard by my God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, praise his name. I've been reconciled, reconciled by the accomplished shed blood of the Son, Jesus Christ. He's bought me, and we are his daughters, we are his sons. Verse 19, when you see the language of God, please have all of his fullness dwelling in him. It's the idea of God tabernacling among us. You see that language in the, in the book of, of John as well, the Gospel of John. And you see this temple imagery all through Scripture where God's presence was in the temple. God's presence was in the temple. And then Christ became the temple. And the fullness of God, it dwells in him in Christ. Really quickly, I need to close off, but I want you to note this chart, the parallels. I made this chart for you. I just want you to see it. It's small. I can email it to you. I did email it to you on Friday. In the first creation, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. In the new creation, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. You see the nature of Christ there. In the first creation, he is the firstborn of all creation before all things because he, he is the supreme one. He is the inherited one one from whom all of the Father's inheritance goes, that Christ shares with us, which is great news. And he is the firstborn from the dead. In verse 17, he is before all things. In verse 18, he is the beginning. 
In verse 16, by him all things were created. Oh, by, by him all things were created and through him. And in verse 19, through him, uh, to him, to reconcile to himself all things. And so you can see the parallel language of through him, through him, by him. In the beginning, before all things, firstborn, firstborn, the image of the invisible God, fullness of God dwelt in him. So what does this mean? The Colossians believe there are other authorities they needed to go to. And Paul is just saying to them, there is no other authority. There is one authority. It is Christ. He is eternally the divine son. He is the second person of the triune God. He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the resurrection and life. He is the good shepherd. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he has created you. You are created by him. And you are created for him. And he would stop at nothing to reconcile you to himself. That is the good news of the gospel. And then in verse 17, what does he tell us? That he holds all things together. Is that not great news? Andrew, you guys can come up. He holds all things together. Christ holds all things together through COVID. Praise his name. Christ holds all things together through my dysfunctional relationship. Praise his name. Christ holds all things together through the disease I'm facing. Praise his name. Christ holds all things together when my life has fallen apart. When my finances are a mess. When my parents are aging. Christ holds all things together. And in all of this, he has the supremacy. And if today you're a believer, if you're someone who's repented of your sin and trusted in him, that God who has made everything and holds them together by his might and will, he's on your side. He's on your side. There's no greater news than that, is there? This God is on your side. He stopped at nothing to reconcile you to himself. You think he'll stop at anything? To see you through? Until you see him face to face? I tell you no. Because he is above all power and authority. Whether visible or invisible. Whether ruler or authority. He is Christ the Son. Eternally, amen. Let's worship him today.